I have to tell you, uh, as a father, I used to tell my children stories uh, before bed, not every night, certainly. Um, but it was something that, I don't know, I just got into a pattern very early on with them, and I would keep the stories running because it was much easier to do that than to be uh, kind of come up with a fresh idea anyway each night. And so one story, which was about Bigfoot and Sasquatch because we were living in the Pacific Northwest at the time, that one went on for probably five or six years. And uh, after we moved from Seattle back to Chicago to go to seminary, I had to change things up a bit because, you know, Chicago, you don't see a lot of big feet around. Well, you do Michael Jordan and stuff like that, but you don't see Bigfoot or Sasquatch around Chicago. So anyway, it's happened I got into, and of course now they're older, and they feel really weird when I ask my 42-year-old son and 38-year-old daughter and 35-year-old daughter to sit down. I'm going to tell them a bedtime story. It's like, yeah, no. So I have to uh, make up for it with my grandchildren. And so one of the recent ones that I've been... Uh, telling with them, especially my Boston grandchildren, because they're the only ones I get to see with any kind of regularity, is uh, about a cute little minnow named Maurice, the mini minnow. And I know, this is not exactly what I wanted, but this, was a, this is an actual goldfish. Uh, I forget the name of it. It's something like a galaxy-eyed goldfish. And I thought, well, that's as close as I'm going to get, because Morris, Maurice Morris is unique among even minnowdom, by virtue of his stature, he's small, even by minnow standards. And he's got little pectoral flippers, I guess fins, on his side, which for some reason remind me of me. Um, <laughs> people like making fun of my T-Rex arms, as they call it. Very cruel. People are very cruel. Um, and so, you know, there's a little bit of me in uh, Maurice the Minnow, Mini Minnow, whatever, and uh, he's an outcast, anyway, among the rest of the minnows in whatever pond, stream, or ocean he happens to be in, depending on the particular story that I'm in. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to take little Maurice, and I need to have him get a friend who's quite uh, different than Maurice. And sure enough, uh, I decided that what would be really antithetical to this diminutive little minnow that swims in a pond, an aquatic thing, but a big bull moose. So Manfred the Mighty Moose was created to become, uh, against all odds, friends with my little mini minnow. And uh, they have little excursions and things that they do together, um, as much as a minnow can, given his habitat and the moose and those kinds of divides. Uh, but as I tell them a story, and these are usually, you know, brief rather than long, much shorter actually than, uh, than what I'm dragging out here because I have nothing else to say beyond this. So I'm, I don't know. Uh, no, but I tell them a story and there's, there's almost always a point to the story. Um, it might be, um, you know, moralistic. There might be a moral to the story or just demonstrating good morals or a virtuous kind of story between, you know, friendships who are very unlikely and giving of self to the friends, all that sort of thing. And so, again, when I tell them about Morris the Mini Minnow or Maurice, as I sometimes call him, uh, and Manfred the uh, Mighty Moose, um, they, we come away with a lesson in particular. Now... Why am I going through all of this at the beginning of here? Because this morning, in our text in Mark chapter 12, we begin with Jesus telling a totally fabricated, made-up story. 
And in the scriptures, they're called parables. And it's interesting, or not interesting, it's important to note when the Bibles tell us that a parable is being spoken because it is, it, we know then that it's in a particularly, uh, um, it's in a particular literary genre that defines what a parable is, and that is that it's a made-up story, so let's not get too cranked up about maybe some absurd things that are communicated, you know, like it's easier for a rich man to, uh, or easier for uh, whatever, the eye of a needle thing, the camel, yeah. I tell my stories much better than this to the grandchildren. You're just a little more intimidating. So anyway, yeah, uh, where was they? They're there to tell uh, the little story. And so Jesus begins this morning by saying that he's going to talk about a parable. That is a story that is intended, again, to uh, be very focused. First, we need to back up a little bit and get the context, because, again, one of the principles of good, solid exegesis of the Bible is, one, allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, and also keeping our our finger in the text, as uh, Dr. Walt Kaiser used to tell us at Trinity, um, meaning keeping our mind on the context, both in the immediate and then in the broader context of the whole Bible. So this is Passion Week. And that colors different things as we're reading through that. And, and because of the rate that we've been going through this on, it's easy to forget that, oh, yeah, we talked about that, you know, how many weeks ago. But we are probably in Tuesday even of, of Passion Week, and the cleansing of the temple has already taken place. And the triumphal entry of Jerusalem, of course, was, you know, the beginning of Passion Week, and that's all in the immediate past. And... We're right now on the heels of, like I said, the cleansing of the temple. So the animus, that is the the anger, the hatred of the enemies of Jesus is still all very fresh. And I say that because there's a chapter break here, which we're used to just in our American layout of literature. It's like, oh, chapter break, another chapter kind of a new thing, but, but don't do that. This is all a continuation of what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. And in fact, it's the same audience that we talked about last week with, with, them, uh, with the they, who are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, are interrogating Jesus, trying to find him uh, in something with which they can trap him, and they can uh, imprison him at least, or even worse. So at any rate, we learned last week that the they who would compromise or comprises the Pharisees as part of or, or a compilation of that group, they have one intent. And that intent, again, is to investigate Jesus, seeking some way to get Jesus out of commission, to get him out of the public spotlight. So again, we are in Passion Week, and we are at the very end of Jesus' public ministry. So he's not long for the world. Well, Jesus, if you remember last week's message, just shut down the they who comprise, I said the Pharisees are part of the group, or, or uh, there's some overlap there, but part of the, uh, comprised the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish court of, uh, of justice, basically the Jewish Supreme Court. And they were inquiring about Jesus, again, as I said, trying to trap him. So let's not forget that it's the same exact players that we were talking about last week. And so even if there is a chapter break, that's only for convenience, and we're continuing really on with the story. Now, parables, as I said, are just stories. They're intentionally made up stories, usually, not always, but usually with a singular point. And the details of the parables generally are not significant 
So, for example, at the very beginning when I started telling my grandkids about Morris and Manfred, all right, they love asking questions. I mean, tons of questions, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but with Morris and Manfred, there's no significance, okay, to the fact that Morris is, is smaller than the other minnows or that he has diminutive little, little fins. I like that. I don't know why. Diminutive little fins on his side. Um, there's no significance to the big honking antlers that Manfred wears or that the pond sometimes is drained down and there's hardly any water. None of those things. The point is the point that I make in my story, and it's always obvious. But that being said now about a parable, some parables can take on allegorical significance. And an allegory is something that harkens back to something in the past that you are intentionally trying to draw someone's attention to by use of your verbiage and everything else in the current day. The parable that's told by Jesus is, in fact, again, a continuation initiated by the Sanhedrin. And Jesus' point now with the parable, though, in front of them, he's hoping is going to cause bells to go off in the hearts of Jesus' enemies even while he yet again dresses them down, ripping off their facade of devout, God-fearing men, exposing them as the frauds that they are. Now, does it work? Well, we're going to see that when we get to the end of the parable. Now, in interpreting parables, one has to be a little careful about going outside the boundaries, if you will, of the parable, meaning we have to look at it in the light of Scripture and in the context and in the intent of it instead of inserting or infusing meaning into the parable where none is intended. In other words, making the parable say what you want it to say for whatever reasons. So let's remember that as we go through Mark chapter 12, 1 through 11. Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it. And he dug a vat under the wine press and he built a tower and he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty handed. So again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, Hey, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Now the story for the most part, as far as the story itself, is over. But now is going, Jesus is going to start tying things up to bring it to that one salient point. What will the owner of the vineyard do, Jesus asks? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Again, now the lesson is is over. But he tags it now, and this isn't part of the parable. This is his kind of concluding shot across the bow, and he says, quoting scripture, Have you not even read this scripture that the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone, this came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Now, in the culture of the day, the people who are living there, the people that Jesus is giving the story to, live in an agricultural society, in an, ag- an agrarian culture. And so this idea of absentee landowners is completely familiar to them. This is not something that Jesus just took out of the air. He's rather reaching again into a familiar context for them to which they can perhaps relate. And so landowners would oftentimes rent out on a sharecropping basis vineyards or functioning farms or just land in general that the people can plant with whatever they want, but then he gets a part of it. And sometimes these absentee landowners are gone for, for long periods of time. Sometimes people even wondering if they're ever coming back. But he generally has people overseeing those things for him. So this is a familiar setting to the people that Jesus tells this story to. Now, a few minutes ago, I said that parables teach one-pointed lesson and the details are generally unimportant. Generally. In this parable... Jesus mentions such details as the wall that's around this vineyard. He mentions the pit into where the juice would flow. And then there's the press that was built over the pit expressly for the purpose of when they squeeze whatever it is they're squeezing, it flows right then into this pit. That's what it was made for. And then there was frequently a tower that was built overlooking the vineyard or the land, which was for protection of the land itself as well as for shelter of the particular farmer. All of this was very common in Galilee. So this story rings very familiar because of their current cultural experience. But here in this parable, the language of verse 1, and I'm referring namely to the details that are given, are in fact pointedly aimed at the Sanhedrin at the Jewish high court, the people that comprise that. And it hits them right between the eyes. And it hits them between the eyes because Scripture interprets Scripture. And they are very familiar with the Scriptures. And so the context to this whole thing enables us to know that the principles in focus, again, the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, and the elders, are the they who are in fact the religious experts. They are the religious scholars. And they are scripturally informed experts in all of the katuvim, what's called the katuvim and the nevaim and the the toharot, the, 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 the law and the prophets and the writings which comprised the entire Old Testament. And so, for all of the hypocrisies of the Pharisees, of which there were many, they were very studied and they knew their scriptures. And because they knew their scriptures, this is getting really uncomfortable. Because there's another parable of another vineyard in their writings with which they would have been quite familiar from the prophet Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. A song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, he removed its stones, and he planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, and as he hewed out a wine vat in it, he also hewed out a wine vat in it, and then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I haven't done? 
Why then, why when I expected to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to the vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So we're being told what the details are categorically. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus, he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, there was a cry of distress. So you see, this description of the vineyard is just way too similar for coincidence. And the groups mentioned, again, which prided themselves on their knowledge of the law and the writings and the prophets, of whom Isaiah was one of their absolute premier, probably the biggest prophet, if you will. So if there was anyone's prophecies that they were intimately acquainted with and perhaps even memorized in its entirety, it would have been the writings of Isaiah. So it appears, going back to Mark now, that Jesus is setting up a masterful emotional word picture. And I borrow that phrase from authors uh, Gary Smalley and John Trent, who back in the 80s wrote a book called The Language of Love, and it's about communicating in what they call emotional word pictures. And it's taking a story, crafting it in such a way that it is intended to cut through the belligerence and the blockades of one's individual biases and of one's apathy in order to hit at the very heart of communication on an emotional level. This will make more sense in a minute. Have you ever said, for example, mom, dad, to your kids, for the umpteenth time, how many times do I have to tell you that when you're outside playing in the snow and you come in, you got to stomp your feet before you come into the house, not when you're in the house. And you said it yourself, for the umpteenth time. You're saying the same thing over and over again, and you're getting the same non-response, or at least not the response that you want. That's, it's blocked out by consciously or unconsciously a belligerent intellect, or perhaps apathy, eh, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Like you watch Charlie Brown. Did you ever notice that there are no adults in Charlie Brown that actually talk? When they do talk, all you hear is what? Wah, 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 wah. That's right. <laughs> when Barb and I get frustrated with, uh, with, with, uh, with others, <laughs> and it's, it's rare, but, you know, occasionally, and start saying, you know, we'll sit there and look at each other and go, wah, 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 wah. Well, I will do it. She never does anything like that to me. <laughs> you get the gist. So anyway, here's Jesus, and using familiar visuals for his hard-hearted listeners, once Jesus has the backdrop for the story set, Jesus is now setting them up for the zinger through the allegorical references of the story. The vineyard in this parable, again, this is unusual, as I said, for parables. The vineyard in this parable is Israel. We saw that in Isaiah 5. 
It's also uh, the same kind of uh, uh, reference to Psalm 80, defining the vineyard in the particular story, a particular story. The landowner, obviously, is God. The renters are the they that we've been talking about. You know, the religious experts, the religious ne'er-do-wells, the renters, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. The slaves are all of the servants of God whom he has sent in Israel's history called prophets to try and get them the message to wake them up that they could hear. The son and the only heir is, of course, Jesus the Messiah. In the story, the vineyard owner sends a slave to get the owner's share of the crop, but the renters beat up the slave. Why not? We haven't seen the owner in months. So, for all we know, you know what? The owner may even be dead. He sends somebody or somebody comes along who's ever overlooking the property, we'll just do away with them. The owner sends another on his behalf, and the renters beat him as well. And finally, the landowner sends his own son as his emissary. And Jesus emphasizes the point that the renters, while they didn't respect the owner's servants, they certainly, obviously, they would respect the owner's own son. Now remember again, this is only a story to make a point. So the owner's son goes, and the renters, Jesus tells us, figure that if they kill the son then the vineyard will be theirs. Now, I don't know about you, but I have always had a hiccup when reading this parable. Because I'm sitting there, you know, reading through it, and I'm going, okay, so the son kill him, kill him, kill him, beat him, throw him out. And he says there were many others. There were just three. I mean, this was happening all the time. And then all of a sudden, the, the owner sends his own son, and they, they murder him. And they figure, because in murdering him, that the vineyard somehow is going to revert to them for rightful ownership. So as I knew I was approaching this this week, I thought, okay, when you get into the office on Tuesday, you're going to have to do some legwork to try and figure out what the rules of inheritance were. Is there something peculiar that you're not aware of during of this particular era, whereby if something like that happened, that it would in fact revert to them? And then I had my own eureka moment. It's a parable. It's not historical narrative. Historical narrative is the recounting of actual, factual, historical things that took place with documentation and cross-referencing. And so you see, I'm looking at this and I'm treating it like historical narrative when it's a made-up story. You don't have to ask questions like that of the parable. It's teaching one salient point. So it's, it's no more appropriate to ask that kind of question and for me to demand some kind of logical answer to it that would make sense any more than it would be appropriate for you or anybody else to ask me, well, why did, why did Morris the Mini Minnow have such big bulgy eyes and why, you know, and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you're missing the point. If we were reading this, as, in fact, a historical narrative, we might very legitimately ask ourselves, how would killing the vineyard owner's son give the right to the vineyard? But it's not. And so it is a question that is not worth asking. It is pointless. Jesus, back to the story, asks, so now, what will the vineyard owner do? Put yourself, if you can, 
put yourself now in the place of the crowd that is out there that Jesus, to whom Jesus is telling this story. Remember, you've got all different groups of people. You've got the they, okay, to whom this is really directed at. And then you've got all kinds of other people who certainly were familiar with absentee landowners, and maybe there were even some absentee landowners themselves there. And Jesus says, so what will the landowner do? If I'm a landowner, right, and I'm an absentee landowner, I'm sitting there putting myself in there. Well, I'll tell you what I'd do. Man, I'd go back there and I would annihilate the, the renters and, and, you know, and all of that sort of stuff, right? See, Jesus is cutting through the belligerent intellectualism to the matter of the heart to get people to feel, not just to think where they can dismiss, they can justify, rationalize, and get rid of it, or just not care at any rate. This is why it is called an emotional word picture. Now, when saying the same thing, parents, kids to your friends, siblings, when you find yourself saying the same thing or very similar thing over and over and over and getting the same kind of ineffective response or undesired response from the person you're trying to get through to, consider changing your method of communication from just spewing the factual data of the situation. Don't we men love to do that with our wives? Honey, what's wrong? Nothing. Really? Yep. How do you feel? Fine. Oh, if they feel fine, it's over, okay? <laughs> Just telling you, uh, yeah, you know, right? And so then it comes out, well, you know, you did something. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about all you other guys. <laughs> it means you did something, and now you've got to play that game. I mean, now you have to get into their world to find out what, <laughs> right? What do we say? Well, give me an example. <laughs> that goes over really well. Give me a date and time. Did you have any witnesses? Did anybody else hear what I said? Did they take it that way? See, I get this from my counseling. It has nothing to do with my own personal relationships. <laughs> Try using emotional word pictures instead of just spewing the facts. Meaning, instead of appealing just to the head, try and appeal to the emotion, appeal to the heart. Let me give you a good example. Some of you have heard this. I apologize if you have. One of our daughters was well into her teen years, maybe 15, 16, could have even been 17. I don't really remember. And, whoa, hello. <laughs> Sorry, Ronnie. My mic was kind of a Adam's apple mic there for a minute. So she had asked me to go over to some friend's house, you know, and this was like on a, probably a Friday night. Can I go over to so-and-so's? And, of course, you know what's coming if you're a parent and they're teenagers. Okay, why well, are their boys? Right? Okay, are the parents home? Well, I'm not sure. The parents, but I'm sure, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the parents are home. Okay, if the parents are home, does that mean they are locked away in the basement while you have run of the house, or are they locked away in the attic and you have the run of the house with your friends? No, that's not cutting it. I mean, are the parents home and are they involved? Are they there, present? Right, and you go through this little thing, right? And it's like, what time were you thinking? Well, ten o'clock. Yeah, no way. No. Mm -mm. As long as you live under this roof, you know. You, yeah. 
Okay, so anyway, you go through this, and honestly, they're thinking, here we go. This is lecture number 146 in the whole menu of parental lectures, because they've heard it, right? They've heard it umpteen times in their growing up years, right? So they're hearing, it's hitting their brain, their brain's going, so I got tired of the, you know, and the, 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 you know, the, the his, hysterics when you finally say, no, you're not, no, you can't go, can't do it, you know, and stomping up the stairs, whatever, okay, in your other homes that you guys have. So I just thought, you know what, I'm so tired of this, and obviously, cripe, the things you're saying are doing nothing, really, remember the definition of insanity? Yeah, okay, do the same thing, hope for, you know, different results. So I was in there, and I had just fairly recently read The Language of Love by Smalley and Trent about emotional word pictures. So I'm like, ah, you know, I'm going yeah, to try that. And there is my daughter's cockatiel sitting in the cage that sits right there when you walk through the house. And the cockatiel's name was Baby, and Baby really was a cool bird. I really liked Baby because she didn't just sit there you know, and do bird stuff. Well, pretty much she did, but... When, you, when I would go up to the cage, baby would turn her head sideways, stick her head through the bars, and then just sit there like this because she knew that I was going to come up and take my finger and rub the back of her head. I know, right? Oh, see, I'm getting to the emotional part. See? Oh, okay, and as long as I would do that, she'd stay there. So I, I like baby. Baby was kind of cool. Well, my daughter loved this bird. She had had it by this time probably, I don't know, six, seven years. You know, if, if, you, if, if the parents really don't like a pet or whatever, it'll live forever. If you really have a special one, it's dead, gets hit by a car, parvo virus, whatever. Sorry, I'm counseling myself here. All right. So anyway, so Ginny and I at a – I did it again. I try to keep my kids anonymous. Gee whiz. Anyway, that's all right. She's grown. She's an adult. She doesn't care. Um, so at a calm – time, I said, I sat down with her, I said, Ginny, I said, when you go to get baby out of her cage, I said, what almost always happens every time you take baby out of the cage? And she's sitting there like, what is up with this? She goes, you know, I said, when you got her on her finger, right? And you start walking, what happens invariably? Oh, she takes off and she starts flying around the room. And I go, right, that's right. I said, why does she fly around the room? She goes, because birds fly. She was in the gifted and talented program, I'm telling you. (laughs) And I said, right again. By this time, I'm wondering if she's thinking, where's this going? I feel the heat rising. No, she didn't. She was totally curious. And so I said, all right, now, what do you do every time, every time when baby takes off from your hand, and starts flying around the room. And she wouldn't say, so I did it for her, okay? This is what she does. Oh, oh, baby, baby, oh, oh, baby, 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 what are you doing? Oh, 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 you're going to hurt this guy. Come here, baby, baby. She's trying to catch baby because baby, although she could fly a bit, right, she couldn't land. (laughs) She didn't have a lot of experience landing in the cage, you know what I'm saying? So what she would do is she would fly around in this very erratic paper, paper, uh, pattern with my daughter chasing her and screaming because there was a legitimate chance the baby could get hurt because baby would finally stop when she would fly straight into a wall. I'm not kidding. And she would go, 
poof, and like a cartoon, slide down the wall. So then Jenny would go over and pick her up and, you know, oh, you okay, baby, baby, kiss her little bird head, you know, little bird brain and stuff like that. And, do that. and then she'd go back over and she'd put her in the cage. Now, I said, Jenny, I said, when you take baby out and baby starts flying, why do you freak out? I said, baby is only doing what God created baby to do. And that's to fly. Well, I know, but, but you know what she does and, and she could get hurt. And I said, I know. And I, <laughs> I'm such a, an emotional guy with my kids. They laugh, but, you know, that's all right. And I said, I know that as you are growing up into a young lady, believe me, I know that you are doing exactly what God has created you to do. I mean, think of how ridiculous you would look if you still had the mind and the intelligence and the, the expressions of yourself that you had when you were four years old and you're 15 or 16, right? I, I said, I know this has to happen, and I know it's good. I said, but I am petrified that you are going to hurt yourself. I kid you not. That one story changed her and my relationship for the rest of the time that she was at home and went off to college. I don't remember another incident of getting into the headbutting and everything else. I said, honey, I said, I know I put, I put restrictions on you that probably are unreasonable. And I'm going to work at that and try and do better at that. But if I freak out and I just say, no, and I slam the cage, just know that it is because that I love you. Now, they've heard us say, right? We all say that. Oh, I'm just doing it because I love you. That's all head. There's no emotion in that. I stepped into her world and took a story that she could emotionally relate to and go, I get it. I totally get it. And she did. It changed everything. Well... If you want a scriptural example of a phenomenal emotional word picture that worked as profoundly, look up King David and the confrontation that Nathan the prophet had with David when David was being a royal jerk and a half, stealing his loyal soldier captain's wife and to make matters worse, to cover up his sin, had his best captain, loyal guy, put in the front lines of battle intentionally so that he would get killed, and that way his wife would now be free to be the king's. That's how dastardly he was. Imagine Nathan the prophet now going into the king. Okay? King David, the Lord put something on my heart. And I need to tell you something that you are sinning wretchedly and that God is going to bring you know what upon Israel and we're all going to suffer for your sins. And you are this, you're this, guards, guards, get this crazed prophet out of here. That's not what Nathan did. He tells David a story. 
about a rich man, making it very short, about a rich man who had, had flocks and herds. I mean, the guy was wealthy, which in those days was in terms of number of head of, of animals and things that you had. And he strolls into town, and there's a poor man who had one little lamb. And this lamb was his pet. It was his pride and joy. He loved this little lamb. It wasn't just a farm animal. It was his companion. And this rich scoundrel comes into town with all these, these flocks and everything else, and he says, I'm hungry. Well, you've got a feast. But yeah, no, we're not going to take my lamb. Let's take this poor man's lamb. And he has it killed and cooked. This is the story Nathan's telling David. It's an emotional word picture. And David hears this, and David is furious. And he says, basically, well, you tell me who this rich man is that could do something so nasty and so scurrilous, and we'll take care of him once and for all. How dare he? And Nathan says, you are that man. And David, no calling for guards. David emotionally, spiritually collapses and says, I repent of my sin. It's a very powerful way of communicating men, women, to your wives and to your husbands. I think the book is out of print, the language of love. Not Don't confuse it with the love, love languages or something. Smalley and Trent, I looked it up on Amazon. You can buy them used. When I was doing pre-marriage counseling, it was required reading by everyone I took on. It's a phenomenal way to break through where you've never made any traction before. Why wouldn't the master communicator tap in to such a thing? So Jesus' question is still out there from the parable. What will the vineyard owner do? And unlike previously when Jesus emphatically ordered the they, his enemies, to answer, this time he's asking the question, and it is rhetorical, he's not asking a question to get an answer. He's asking the question so that he can frame his comments. And Jesus answers his question about what the, what the owner will do. He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Remember the significance of the allegorical content. The vineyard is God's people. God is the vineyard owner. The servants sent to the vineyards are the prophets over the ages. And the renters are the religious leaders who hate Jesus because Jesus is taking away their power, their might, their prestige, their authority, and their control of the people. And worse still is they were laying burdens on them that are life-depriving instead of life-enhancing, which is what God wants for all his children. The Pharisees are God's enemies and God will destroy them for their wickedness and their obstinance in not respecting the rightful owner's ownership. Now, is God angry? Yes. He's the vineyard owner and he is angry. Is God mercilessly angry and with glee promising their destruction? No. For whose benefit does Jesus concoct this story in the first place? It's not for those in the crowd who are already enamored with Jesus. It's not for those who are really taken and, and they're fans of Jesus. 
It's not those in the crowd who are looking and hoping and watching and listening and taking it to heart and thinking, maybe he really is. Maybe this is the hope we've been waiting for. No, this story is for the hard-hearted religious experts of the day. God is angry, all right, but not delightfully so. How many of us parents have gotten so angry that we could, as my... My mother used to say, one of the things I can repeat, I'm so angry, I could spit bullets. Anybody? Is, I didn't know if that was a Midwest thing or... Yeah? Wow. And the very angriest that I became with each of my children at whatever particular epic it was, the reason was always the same. Because we weren't talking about childishness or, you know, just casual, you know, stretching the rules or blowing off the rules. But the rules that they blew off, perhaps, could potentially have lifelong repercussions and consequences. And that angered me. Because in my love for them as a father, that's not what I want. The vineyard owner is standing before those who should have known the vineyard owner better than anyone else. And they knew him least. And in fact, they despised him. And God is desperately trying to knock them out of their sinful stupor. Angry? Absolutely. Loving? Most certainly. Merciful, though. Yes, even while being a severe mercy. In Second Peter, we are told, God is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Looking squarely, I believe, I don't know, but I believe Jesus is looking squarely in the eyes of the religious know-it-alls when Jesus asks accusingly, have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He was quoting Psalm 118, verse 2 through 23. In rejecting Jesus, they weren't just snubbing in any old landowner's servants. They weren't merely ignoring the prophets throughout the ages. They were destroying the chief cornerstone, which is the final piece that is put into a a structure which holds it all together and without it, the entire structure will collapse. Well, did Jesus' efforts work with his emotional word picture? Did the Lord's parable break through the sheath of alabaster encasing their hearts? Verse 12 tells us. And they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. Oh, he knew, they knew, I mean, that Jesus was talking to and about them. But because of the people, again, their plans were thwarted and they leave. Manfred, the mighty moose, he's in the pond bright and early at dawn one morning doing his morning breakfast through the duckweed and into the aquatic weeds, and he's fully into the pond with his head below the water. And he would grab a big mouthful, and he'd come up, and he would shake it, and you could just see it was like like an airborne waterfall as he would 
would shake his head and kind of a, you just perceive this, this glorious ritual that he had every time he'd come up with a mouthful to eat, enjoying being a moose. And Morris the mini minnow heard the noise from across another part of the pond and with his diminutive little fins comes hurrying as fast as he can to see his friend. And he comes up to his friend as his head is under the water and he's eating except something was different. Manfred looked distressed. And he could tell by his eyes and by the way his head was limited, seemed to be limited in movement. And and Morris the mini minnow thought, he shouldn't be down this long. He, he should be coming up. I mean, they, you know, it's not like me. He doesn't have gills. They can hold their breath a good while, but, but something's not right here. And so Morris, with his diminutive little flippers, he starts swimming around back and forth, and he realizes that there is this old tree stump that is still into the ground there and very intact with a, like a, a, a bird's nest of monofilament. That's fishing line, all in a tangle, And Manfred, the mighty moose, has his antlers all tangled up in this, and he can't get his head up to get air. What's this little bitty minnow going to do? He has to do something for his friend. And so he's, he's, he's crazy, kind of darting back and forth like this as he's thinking to himself, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm so... I'm, there's no, I'm a helpless... But he noticed that as he was doing that, Manfred was kind of following him as little as he could, though, with his head. And it hit him. I know what I can do. Here's what I'll do. All right. And so Morris the Mini Minnow would come swim over this way. And sure enough, somehow he'd get his antlers up and he'd get raised up over here. And there was a little, little uh, uh, flex in the uh, give in the, the, the tangle of monofilament. And then Morris would swim back over here. He'd go this way. And then he swam up behind him. And he kind of went up like this. And what he eventually did is he actually got him to untie some of the tangle enough to where, with his brute strength, he could pop up and get a big cleansing breath of air. And Morris the mini minnow was so excited and so happy that he did one of the things that he loves doing, and that is that he gets to the very bottom of the pond and he comes shooting up and he pictures himself being this big porpoise in, a, in an aquarium somewhere putting on shows. And he go up and does a couple of flips and then back into the water so excited and happy. And anyway, they spent the day frolicking after that. Oh, yeah. But you know what is sad to me as a preacher? You are never going to remember anything in this sermon, but you will always remember Manfred and Morris. I guarantee it. Let me have you stand. Don Cole, I understand that you're my... Closing prayer here. Speaking of a guy who knows word pictures and knows how to communicate amazingly with anyone and everyone. To be fair, should I sit him back down? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and somebody yelled no. I'll let you do what you want to do. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Great story about Maurice the Pharisee. Whoops, I guess I got that wrong. No, as one who really does enjoy stories, I was riveted. I thought that was wonderful. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are a good, good Father and that you reign. And we confess that you are our Father and our Savior. Thank you for condescending to us 
Lord, to tell a story that rivets our own hearts. You are so good. We thank you. Lord, please always be at work in our hearts that they would be soft and tender to you to the end that would be we would be your children and putting feet and words to our faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.